Hello, we're going to do something a little differently in today's episode of Historically Thinking, in that it's not really an episode of Historically Thinking. Instead, this week, I wanted to share with you a teaser of a podcast that I think you'll like. It's hosted by Jason Pack, guest in episode 337, and it's called Disorder. It's produced by Goalhanger Podcasts, the UK's number one podcasting company, makers of The Rest is History, hosted by friends of this podcast, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. Disorder is hosted by Jason and former British diplomat Alexandra Hall Hall. Their podcast tackles small and easy questions like, how did the world get so disordered? What are the fundamental principles behind our current era of geopolitics? And how do seemingly disparate challenges from AI to climate change, to wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, to tax havens, to unregulated cyberspace, all interact with each other? and feed into our era of global enduring disorder. The first full season of episodes are out now. You can find them by searching for Disorder or by following the links in the show notes below. For me, the Disorder podcast hits on many of the same themes as does historically thinking. For example, how a range of seemingly disparate historical phenomenon are actually interlinked. But it tackles the phenomenon through conceptual investigation with the doers of geopolitics rather than interviews with historians. So since I think you'll enjoy it, I wanted to give you a little taste of what disorder sounds like. We are going to tune into episode 11, where Jason and Alex spoke with Jonathan Powell, Tony Blair's former chief of staff. They present an overview of some humorous anecdotes from the Northern Ireland peace process, and they discuss what they can tell us about the factors that lead to successful negotiations and how we can draw upon those lessons in the Middle East and Ukraine. You can find that episode in full, as well as Jason's proposed plans for the post-war governance of Gaza, by following the links in the show notes. Now over to Jason and Alex for that teaser. Talk to you next week. Welcome to the era of global enduring disorder. That's why we've launched the brand new podcast, Disorder, with me, Jason Pack. Oh my gosh, Jason, dun, 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 dun. You're scaring off our listeners before we've even begun. And I'm the co-host of Disorder, Alex Hall Hall. Yes, there is a little evil versus good here. I'm an entrepreneur and senior analyst at the NATO Defense College Foundation. While Alex is a former British ambassador, known for, you know, popping up equally in the Pentagon, Whitehall, the Middle East peace process, and occasionally even in India. And in this podcast, we're going to be exploring the state of geopolitics. Why is it so crazy? Why does nothing seem to work? Why don't countries coordinate or even act in their own best self-interests? How did we get into this era of global disorder? And adding to this interesting mix, Jason is an American who's become fed up with the state of politics in the US and has moved to London. And as I think some of you know, I have become a somewhat disenchanted Brit and I have now decided to move to America. We're both kind of political exiles and I think that gives us a really interesting and fresh perspective both on our original countries and the ones we're now living in. Disorder is a difficult thing to order. But Alex and I are going to try to draw on our experiences, whether it was trying to host a trade mission to Libya 
or advising oil companies about the price of crude. And we're going to track patterns. We're going to explore themes. And we're going to forecast where the next battles will take place. The reality is it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yes, as somebody once said to me in 2019, when I was Brexit counsellor, buckle up, it's going to be a bumpy ride. But to help us unravel these disordered times, we will be guided along the way by some absolutely amazing expert guests. Guests like Jonathan Powell, who we spoke to for an upcoming episode about diplomatic psychology. To me, Jonathan is intergalactically famous for being Her Majesty's special envoy to Libya in 2014 and 2015 under David Cameron. For everyone else on planet Earth, however, Jonathan is known for serving as the chief of staff under Tony Blair from 1997 to 2007. In that role, he oversaw a goodly number of key negotiations, including in Colombia, as well as the ones that led to the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. As we're going to hear from Jonathan Powell about important top table negotiations he's participated in, we need to think about what are the big negotiations the democratic world needs to be having now to avert future cataclysms. Those have to do with things like tax havens, climate change, arms proliferation, but then maybe also more equitable distributions of wealth, how to manage AI. So many of our problems today are collective action problems, but we as a society, as well as individual countries like the UK and the US, we're not talking about how to leverage our top negotiators and institutions to work with our allies and to deter our adversaries. So I think hearing more from Jonathan about negotiations really is going to delve into ways we need to be thinking about how to order the disorder. If you actually want to stop an armed conflict, it's no good saying you're not going to talk to the people with weapons because they're very unlikely to make peace if you don't talk to them. If you can defeat them militarily, fine, but if they have political support, you're probably going to have to negotiate with them at some stage. So you find yourself negotiating with people you really don't like. When I first met Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness in 1997, I refused to shake hands with them. My father had been shot by the IRA. My brother Charles had been on their death list for eight years. I didn't feel very warm and cuddly about them. And yet, a few weeks later, I got a call from Martin McGuinness and he said, would I come and visit him in Derry, incognito, not tell the securocrats, the police and the army, and I asked Tony Blair, and he said, yeah, sure, you're expendable. I got on a plane, flew to Belfast, took a taxi to uh, Derry, stood on a street corner feeling like a sort of very, very minor Le Carre character, and was pushed into the back of a cab by two guys with shaved heads, driven around for about an hour until I was completely lost, and they dropped me outside a, a modern building on the edge of an estate. And I knocked on the door, and Martin McGuinness came to the door on crutches. I spent three hours in that house with him. The lady of the house had gone away, left sandwiches, left the fire on. We made no progress in the negotiation, but I learned one important thing, and I think that was perhaps the most important thing I learned, which is you have to build trust in these circumstances. If you really want to end an armed conflict in a negotiation, the people you're talking to need to trust you. And that means you need to go onto their turf. You can't expect them to come to number 10 Downing Street all the time or to come to a castle in Belfast. You have to share risks with them. And if you start sharing risks, over time you can build trust. It allows you to make that bridge that eventually allows you to succeed. What do you think was different about the kind of leaders that you were working for that allowed that process to begin? Successful negotiations require 
leaders on both sides who are prepared to take risks. You know, if you think about South Africa, if you hadn't had someone like Nelson Mandela willing to put the past behind him, willing to take real risks with his own side, and if you hadn't had F.W. de Klerk also willing to take risks with the right wing of the Africana movement, you wouldn't have had peace. And in Northern Ireland, we had leaders of the political parties and they actually were risking their lives, not just their careers to make peace. They had to move their movement, some of whom didn't want to move in these circumstances. So I think that's a key factor. If you have people who will take risks, then you have a chance of making success. In fact, Tony Blair says in his, um, his autobiography that I told him that he'd made peace because he had a messiah complex. It wasn't exactly that. It was Mo Molum, who you may remember, who had a very colourful turn of language. And she said that Tony thought he was effing Jesus, which is not <laughs> quite the same as a messiah complex. So the difference was people prepared to take risks and with a great deal of self-belief that it could be done and they could do it. But in terms of taking risks and building that trust, how much had to take place in secret first? I mean, if presumably a lot of this took place without any publicity, so they'd already got to a stage where there was a certain amount of trust before news of the negotiations leaked or the talks leaked. How much do you need to have secrecy? I think secrecy, particularly in these kind of negotiations, is fundamental. People won't make concessions in public. They don't want their own side to see them looking weak and giving in on things. You know, when I was negotiating with Jerry Adams, we often negotiated in a monastery in West Belfast. And he had a very small team with him, four of his closest people, plus Martin McGuinness. And even there, if he wanted to make a concession, he asked me to come and walk around the courtyard of the monastery with him so there was no one else there. And then he'd make a suggestion, maybe we could do this, maybe we could do that. So there's an inverse proportion between the number of people in the room and the flexibility people are prepared to show. You, know, you don't get flexibility in great big conference rooms. You get it in coffee breaks and in small sessions like that. It is essential that negotiations, when they're on sensitive issues, when you're expecting people to make concessions, are in private. Because people will make concessions, but only if they know they're going to get a concession from the other side. So in my view, it is essential to have secrecy for the first stages of the negotiations. What was the most dangerous moment, do you think? Was there a moment when you really thought it might fall apart? There were quite a lot of moments when it looked like it was going to uh, collapse. I pointed myself, I'm not quite sure why, the official optimist the whole way through, believing it would be done and could be done. Tony lost faith sometimes. I remember one particular incident when he did a town hall with young Republicans and young unionists in number 10, a television thing. And I remember coming out the door and running into me and saying, we might as well give up, Jonathan. The next generation's worse than the last. And yeah, you do have moments like that in a negotiation. There's one I remember very well, which was we'd nearly got to an agreement. The IRA had agreed to decommission, but then at the last minute, Ian Paisley had demanded they wear sackcloth and ashes and that there be photographs of the weapons being dismantled. And they refused. And the thing had collapsed. Pretty much everyone gave up at that stage. Even the Irish government gave up. And I decided we should keep on negotiating. So I flew over to Belfast. I was met by a Northern Ireland office official who told me to get out of the car and told me the biggest bank robbery in world history had happened the night before. And the dogs on the street knew it was the IRA who'd done it. And I was absolutely furious. Here I was out on a limb saying we should be going on with negotiations. And the IRA just cut it off behind me. And Adams and McGuinness would certainly have known about that. I felt like getting back on the plane, flying back to London, but I had a little theory, the bicycle theory, that once you've got a negotiation like that going, you've got to keep it moving because if you let it fall over, it's incredibly difficult to get it back up and running again. So you must keep going, however painful it is, personally, politically. So I got back in the car, we went to the monastery, and I couldn't even tell Adams McGuinness I knew about this burglary because the police weren't going to announce it till lunchtime. 
So I was fuming by the time I flew back to London. But again, keeping going was the right thing to do. What does a negotiator need when it comes to the psychological human dimension? Is it an ability to listen, to understand other languages, cultures, to speak slowly? What would you say on that point? I'm not sure I meet any of those criteria. I speak very fast. I'm not very good at languages and so on. So I'm not sure there's like one cookie cutter model of a perfect negotiator. I do think the one you touched on, the listening, is really very important. Too often I hear people at negotiating tables who simply aren't listening. They may think they're listening. They may sit there quietly, but they're not actually listening. They're not listening for what do the people say this time they didn't say last time? How do they say it differently this time? Are they trying to give you a hint of where they can move? Uh, have they really not thought through what their interests are as opposed to their positions? So you have to listen and then see where the opportunity might be to change it. So you're sitting there, you're listening, and then you say, well, actually, so if we change the language like this, would that meet what you want? And sometimes you can get there. If you do it too slowly, they may move on. But if you can do it like that, that makes a difference. But you're also right, obviously, about the human element. Um, you have to be able to build trust with people. But there's a difference between personal rapport and becoming friends. I've seen people who negotiate with armed groups who become really sort of victims of sort of Stockholm syndrome. They become much too friendly with the people they're negotiating with and always favoring the underdog rather than the government. And quite often it's the government that's in the right. One of my favorite anecdotes, it sounds flippant, but it does capture things that I think about negotiations quite well. We had a whole day of negotiating in the Sinn Féin office uh, with Adams and McGuinness, who were playing a big, bad cop, good cop routine and beating me up and then being nice and beating me up and then being nice, trying to get concessions. Halfway through this 12 hours of negotiations, Adams leaned over the table and said to me, the thing I like about you, Jonathan, is you blush when you lie, which is indeed true. <laughs> and uh, Bill Jeffrey, who was sitting next to me, the Northern Ireland office official, leaned back across the table and said, unlike you, Jerry. And, and uh, actually, that summed the thing up. The <laughs> of negotiation is actually transparent. Jonathan's lessons on Northern Ireland are actually applicable to other domains which are not just geopolitical conflicts. You can draw out ways that we might deal with the Chinese over climate change and how we can have third parties help us work with the Cayman Islands and Jersey and Guernsey over tax havens. What we have to do to solve global problems is work with people who have different interests who don't trust us to get to a solution which is in everyone's best interest. And that's challenging, takes compromise, takes understanding of human psychology. And Jonathan and people like him know how to do that. I'm not so sure about our leaders today. The Disorder Podcast is out now. If you love disorder or you hate disorder, make sure you follow us so you can get every episode right now in your feeds. Come and order the disorder with us.